Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. Why, why, why would Jesus become one of us? Why would he go through that hassle? Why would he go through the agony and the grief? Why would he put up with 12 disciples who seemed like they perpetually never got it? It's because Jesus came to put religion back in its rightful place behind us. Think of some of the things that have been done in the name of religion, not just them and then, but since then. Child sacrifices to honor the gods. Honor killings. Holy wars. The Inquisition. The Salem witch trials. And even the KKK. We can include our own list in addition to that. But the bottom line is, people have always ended up abusing others when they put religion in first place instead of God. Pope Urban II, I had never heard of him before this lesson. He did not coach the Buckeyes. <clears throat> gave this speech, or parts of this speech, in November, on November 27, 1095, and he did so to launch the crusade. So you gotta get everybody all riled up, you gotta get everybody to sign up and be part of this army that's going to march to the Holy Land and drive out the heathen unbelievers. And here's what he said with all of his Pompousness. On this account, I, or rather the Lord, always good to start out speaking for God, I beseech you as Christ's herald to publish this everywhere and to persuade all people of whatever rank, foot soldiers and knights, poor and rich, to carry aid promptly to those Christians and to destroy that vile race from the lands of our friends. Sounds noble, doesn't it? He goes on to say this, Moreover, Christ commands it. Therefore, all who die on the way, whether by land or by sea, in battle against the pagans, and here's where the drum roll would mount to a crescendo, shall have immediate remission of sins. Now that may not strike the same chord with us that it did for them, but that's because for them, the primary focus of every sermon they heard was guilt and condemnation to hell because you're a sinner and you have no hope whatsoever. Except if you join the Crusades, you get an immediate get out of hell free card. Now, if all you've ever heard is you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And then somebody offers you a get out of hell free card. You don't have to worry about anything anymore. 
I mean, previously they could get there, but that's what was referred to as indulgences, which was a great way of fundraising. I mean, some people have bingo for their church. Some people have rummage sales for their church. They had indulgences, and they built cathedrals all over the world with the money of guilty consciences. So when Pope Urban declared that you were immediately absolved of all of your sin, past, present, or future, they signed up by the thousands. And it didn't matter what happened after that because, after all, they were clear. They were free. They had their ticket punched. And that's what happens when religion becomes our priority. It replaces any semblance of mercy. Now, since it didn't matter what you did, because your ticket's punched, you're on your way to heaven no matter what, these soldiers of Christ send all across Europe and all the way to the Holy Land. If you've got forgiveness, you might as well use it, right? <clears throat> I think I've heard somebody who was uh, the father of a rather famous basketball player locally who challenged his son, if you come home with five fouls, it's because you weren't playing hard. Right, Kirk? <clears throat> so these soldiers of Christ were determined they were not going to go to heaven with any kind of fouls left unpunched on their ticket. So, armed with the mentality, I can do whatever I want. Because I'm a crusader, that's exactly what they did. I can go to heaven no matter what I do, because I'm a crusader. That's exactly what they did, without fear of accountability. And so, in the name of Jesus, they plundered, stole, raped, and killed all the way to Jerusalem, because religion became their priority instead of mercy. Now... Here's the problem. Real life never fits the structure of religion. And after we put that screen together, I thought, there's a better way to phrase that. Real life rarely follows the rules, does it? Because the rules in our head would say, there should never be any miscarriages or stillborn births. Innocent babies should never die. Those are the rules in our head because those are the rules that make sense to us. The rules in our head that real life ignores always end up with us feeling like that's not fair. Because real life is inconsistent. It's random. And real life is real messy. And that drives the rule makers crazy they want structure they want black and white they want it clearly identified who's right and who's wrong because after all they're always the ones who make the rules so they're always going to be right but re when religion becomes a priority the guardians of that religion 
usually end up becoming self-righteous. Self-righteous. It doesn't matter what the religion is. It doesn't matter what the name on the outside of their building is, if they have a building. That religion's leaders will always grade on the curve. So that somehow, magically, they're the ones who always get the top score. The game is fixed from the very beginning. That way they can dictate to those who are beneath them, those who are lower than them, those who, well, they're just the unwashed masses, right? They can tell them what they're doing wrong, and they can tell them what they need to do to make it right. And that puts them in power and in control. Because their religion is rigged for them to win, they typically become self-righteous. And in that self-righteousness, they become angry at the followers who aren't following the rules. You're just supposed to accept the rules because that's the way it's always been and that's the way we always do it. Why? Why do they become so angry about that? Well, typically, it's because they're secretly jealous that they can't commit the same sin as everyone else. You've seen that, right? The preachers who rail so hard and loud and long about adultery are the very ones find, who found out later that they've been having numerous affairs with the members of the church for years. It's embarrassing. Those who stand loudest and longest against child pornography are experts in it because of what's on their computer. When religion becomes the priority, rule keepers can become hypocrites. Their main focus has become trying to gain the approval and the acceptance of their leaders instead of their anger. And the only way to do that is to pretend that they're somebody that they're not. Perfect. Righteous, holy. But what they are is hypocrites. And that's why it doesn't matter what the religion is, because when that religion becomes a priority, the result will always be the self-righteous leaders have hypocritical followers. Jesus found himself in a perpetual three-year-long debate with the religious leaders of his day over this very issue. But why? He's the son of God. He shouldn't have had to argue this point, right? The only thing is, both Jesus and the religious leaders agreed that God's law given to Moses was a priority. But Jesus consistently prioritized people over their religious traditions. And that blew their mind. They couldn't wrap their head around it. How could he claim to be a teacher that's come from God and set aside the very customs of that God's religion? In their mind, he had lost all credibility because he prioritized people over what they knew was the will of God. Consequently, their conclusion was, there's no way that Jesus can be a messenger from God because he doesn't follow our traditions that tell us who's qualified and who's not, who has access to God and who's rejected by God. 
It all kind of came to a head one day. It, it, there's a story of it in Mark chapter 2. It says, one Sabbath, Jesus was walking through the grain fields, and his disciples were with him. And they began to break off some heads of grain to eat. Be kind of like walking along, and, and there's an apple tree growing by the road, and you just pick off an apple and eat it. It was the same type of thing. In verse 24, it drove them nuts. The rule keepers couldn't understand that. Why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Now, nobody pulled in a John Deere. <laughs> nobody hitched up a team of horses. They're just kind of plucking some grain off in their hands and having a little snack granola on the way. And yet they're accusing them of actually harvesting. And here's the, here's the mind-boggling part of all of this. The irony of their accusation, they're making it against the one who gave the law to Moses in the beginning. God became flesh and lived among us, and they're complaining to God about how God's breaking God's rules. Now, Jesus understood that if there was anybody that they respected other than Moses, it would be King David. They put him at the same level as Moses because he represented the golden era of Israel. So Jesus reminded them of a time when David himself crossed the line in the letter of Moses' law. David was not yet king. King Saul was the ruler at that time. He was extremely jealous and threatened by David and desperate to kill him. you got to get rid of the competition, right? So David gets confirmation of Saul's plot to kill him, and he does the logical thing. He, he doesn't want to make a scene. He just takes off. He goes on the run. He's a fugitive from the king. He makes his way to a priest and begs for something to eat. Apparently, McDonald's was closed, or else all they have is Chick-fil-A. They were closed on Sunday. He's starving to death. He approaches the priest and he begs him for something to eat. But the only thing that he has is the ceremonial sacred bread that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. Now that bread was off limits to anybody except for the priests who were serving there in the tabernacle at that time. Under the circumstances, the priest looks at David and he makes a decision that it would be better to share the bread that was consecrated to God than to let the future king of God's people starve to death. And that's when God in the flesh declares what he values the most. In verse 27 of Mark 2, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Or maybe stated in a little more clear language, the New Century Version phrases it this way, the Sabbath day was made to help people. People were not made to be ruled by the Sabbath day. God didn't come up with a law first and then create people just so they could keep that law. People are God's real priority. They always have been, and that's why Jesus came, was to reset the order of things as God saw it. 
He acknowledges that the law is important, but people are his real priority. Otherwise, it would be like God delivering his people from Pharaoh's Egypt just so he could give them the Ten Commandments and see how many times they could mess it up. God is not about setting us up to fail. Any more than parents, parents don't have kids just so that they've got somebody to pick up the toys. Right? If so, we've failed miserably. Welcome to the guardians of the rules. Some people grew up in homes where their parents were super focused on rules. That was a fun time, wasn't it? And yet, the best practices in parenting show up when parents love their kids more than they love their rules, right? What was the typical impact on the kids that grew up in those environments where the rules were the most important thing? What usually happened the first chance they got, whether mom and dad went away for the weekend to trust them, or whether they went away to college? Did you survive that first semester? Probably not. They thanked you for your contribution to the university and invited you to leave. They couldn't wait to leave home and get on their own. Why? Because it felt like the parents were more in love with the rules than they were in love with you as a kid. But best practices for great parents are so much different than that. Sure, they have rules, they have boundaries, they have guidelines. But on occasion, they're flexible enough to decide whether it's in the best interest of their kids if those rules get set aside for right now. And that just blows the mind of people who have replaced God with the idol of their own creation called religion. And Jesus became one of us and lived among us for this reason, to put the rules and religion back in its place. That needed to happen because God saw his people becoming obsessed with religion. The guardians of religion started using the laws of God against the people of God. It was like a club that they'd beat them over the head with. Kind of like the club that the religious guardians of the days in the crusades would use. Pay up, sinner, or go to hell. Let's pass the plate again. That would always put them on the wrong side of God. Because they'd use God's law to abuse God's people. And then they'd just go offer another sacrifice at the temple. And it was usually some animal that was, all, that was already sick, lame, or, or blind that was going to die anyway. It was almost like they used or created loopholes in their religion just so they could flaunt their status over the other people who were just, just trying to get right with God. Now, periodically, God would send an Old Testament prophet like Amos to reset religion to its proper place. For example, you'd hear Amos talk about things like this in Amos chapter 5. So speaking for God, he would say, I despise your religious festivals. 
Could you imagine hearing God say to us, you know what, let's cancel Christmas because it's just not working for me. Easter, forget Easter. Wait, we've already done that once, right? Yeah, a couple of years ago. Huh. Or how about this? How about if God said, you know what, would you just knock off the worship because it's hurting my ears? Not because of who's playing or who's singing. And your burnt offerings, I have no regard for them. What was God's problem? Isaiah would phrase it this way in chapter 1, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings, and I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. You see, it's there that God calls them out for their practice of doing whatever they feel like doing in the moment, treating people however they felt like treating them, abusing them, robbing them, taking advantage of them, all in the name of the loophole in their religion, and then go to the temple and with a few little sacrifices appease their conscience and go back home and pick up and do it all over again. Now, I'm sure you've never known anybody that went to church like that, have you? Don't shout out my name. It's embarrassing. But you know people who live like the devil all week long, show up at church every now and then to soothe their conscience, and then go back right, right back out to do what they were doing before, and treating people like they were treating people before, and living like the devil all over again. In verse 13, he says, stop bringing your meaningless offerings to me. Your incense is detestable to me. It's almost as God looks them in the eye and says, how stupid do you think I am? That you could buy me off with the blood of a goat. What kind of a God would that make me? How gullible do you think I am? I see what you do. I hear what you say. You can't buy me off like that. God will not be bribed. And so in verse 15 of Isaiah 1, he says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Could this be the biblical basis for la, 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 la? I can't hear you, I can't hear you. If I can't hear you, see you, then it's not real. God's saying, I, I don't love religion. I love people. I don't want your stuff. I want your heart. Don't forget that. So that's why in verse 17 of Isaiah 1, he would say, learn to do what is right. Instead of bringing what's right, do what's right. Instead of seeking approval of the guardians of your religion, seek justice instead. Instead of defending yourself and excusing yourself for, well, I didn't have any choice, you know, I had to do. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Instead of always trying to Make yourself out to be better than you really are. 
Why in the world would Jesus step into that kind of world? Because he came to put religion back in its place. The Sadducees, part of those religious guardian groups, they thought they had God all figured out, and they knew. They knew. They were convinced that this guy couldn't be that God. Their primary goal was to expose Jesus for the fraud that they knew he was. After all, they had to protect their religion, and he was threatening that with some of the things he was teaching. So they decided the best way to do that is, this guy claims to be God, let's trap him with a gotcha question. Because we know what God knows, right? And this guy doesn't know what we know, or else he'd be doing what we do. And because he doesn't, then he can't be. That circular firing squad mentality. And so here's the question they came up with. Of all the laws of Moses, which one of them, Jesus, is the greatest one? And this incident's referred to in Matthew 22. Jesus' reply, it says in verse 37, is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And about that time, you can imagine the guardians going, Oh, well, sure, he says that now, but he doesn't really mean that. And before they can finish that thought in their head, Jesus follows it up with this in verse 38, and the second is like it. Love your enemy as yourself. Excuse me, love your neighbor as yourself. That would be a different location when he said love your enemy. Blew their mind with that one too. And then, in the most amazing pronouncement of all, he says all the law and the prophets. Not just Moses, but Elijah. Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. That's the hinge that everything swings on. It was pretty simplistic. Love God and love your neighbor. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to this concept. Love God, love your neighbor. What was the point of Jonah? Remember that story? Jonah and the big fish? Veggie tales for some of you. <laughs> Ultimately, the point of Jonah is just this. If you love God, you've got to love your neighbor, even the ones that you really hope God burns. Because that's how Jonah felt about the Ninevites. And as you read through the Bible, if you come up with a different conclusion than this, you might want to go read it again because you read it wrong. Love God and love your neighbor is the foundation that everything in the Bible is built on. If you're content with how you practice your religion and your religion allows you to be abusive to people, you probably read it wrong. You're probably doing it wrong. Go back and try again. Everything, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, reinforces that very same teaching. Love God, love your neighbor. Whatever you see and hear Jesus doing, everything the apostles wrote to the churches, it was the same point. Love God, love your neighbor. 
And so, if according to Jesus, who was God in the flesh living among us, according to him, that God in the flesh said everything revolves around this. If you don't know what God wants you to do next, then do whatever love requires, and you'll be fine. Let me ask the praise team, David, to come on back up. We'll finish up with this. You see, in resetting the place of religion, he wasn't throwing it out. He was just putting it back in its right place. Religion has a place. It's second place. Second place. Jesus never used religion or theology to be abusive to people just for his own ego or position. I really don't want to treat you this way, but the Bible says I've got to do this. So sorry about your luck. Jesus never used religion or theology as an excuse to get out of helping someone. I really want to, but yeah, I can't really support you because, well, I've got to give this to the, to the church. Can't help you out with your medical expenses. Jesus values compassion more than commandments. He values compassion more than consistency in the application of those. Remember, Jesus was God in the flesh. And as God in the flesh, he came to show us and teach us what God was really like. He came to show us and teach us who God really values, that each of us are created equal in the eyes of God. And he came to show us and teach us what God really values. It's not our obedience and perfection. It's not our religion. It's not the structures and the way that we do things and the order of it all. What was it that guided him throughout his day, no matter what happened and no matter who he met? It wasn't religion. What guided Jesus, God come in the flesh, was relationships. He lived obedient to God and his law by loving people where they were. How did he always seem to know the right thing to say? How did he always know the right thing to do? Because as Jesus lived his life, he was guided by this question. What is the loving thing that they need done right now? What did that look like? Well, he was never inconsistent because love demands inconsistency sometimes. That may be harder than the absolute rules, but we can't put religion over people. Let's wrap it up with this. Jesus came because of his love, not because of his law. And he lived his life serving others, not serving a religion. He didn't die for rules, he died for rebels. Because ultimately, Jesus didn't die for sin, he died for sinners. And in doing so, he came for us to put religion in its place behind us. Why in the world would God show up? He did that 
for you. If there's some things you need to get right with you and God, and you need somebody to pray with you about doing that, we've got elders here who, who we're happy to look over your, your heart with you. Some of them will meet you in the prayer room over here to the side during the singing of this next song. If, if maybe that means you decide that you're ready to give your life to Him and be baptized into Christ, let's talk about that. Do so privately in a way that allows you to live a new life going forward with the same kind of devotion, not to rules, but to one who loves you more than all. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.